2 Kings chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, God's word says, In the eighteenth year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned twelve years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Now Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jeroboam marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. And he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go up with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, by which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha. The son of Shaphat is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you, but now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him, and he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind or rain, but the stream bed shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink. You, your livestock, and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. And you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall fell every good tree, and stop up all springs of water, and ruin every good piece of land with stones. The next morning, about the time of the offering, the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. And all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them. All who were able to put on armor, from the youngest to the oldest, were called out and were drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, This is blood. The kings of Shirley fought together and struck one another down. Now then Moab to the spoil. But when they came to the camp of Israel, The Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities. And on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped up every spring of water and felled all the good trees till only its stones were left in Kir Hereset. And the slingers surrounded and attacked it. 
When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. Let's pray. Lord, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will abide forever. So would you allow us to hear you speak through your word this morning? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, legend has it that the famous blues music musician, Robert Johnson, once made a devilish deal. One night, the story goes, he took his guitar to the crossroads of highways 49 and 61 in Clarksdale, Mississippi, where he met the devil, who retuned his instrument in exchange for his soul. Johnson had such amazing skills, technique, and mastery of the blues that people believe this happened. Other stories tell of violinists, bishops, and soldiers selling their soul so they might achieve fame, wealth, or power. Now, we don't know if these stories are true or not, but they resonate with us because we know that people are willing to give up almost anything to achieve success, to achieve what they think will be life. We want those people to like us, so they tell a joke that we know we shouldn't laugh at, but we don't want to be considered a prude, so we laugh anyway. We desire to be at that party, so we make excuses and lies to break our prior commitments. The task given to us is too boring or tedious, so we come up with all kinds of rationalizations as to why we can avoid it and pass it on to others. We rationalize our actions, but ultimately we're sacrificing a moral here, a relationship there, and commitments over there because these other things will bring me joy. These other things will bring me success in life. Well, this morning we come to a story that is all about raising or achieving success, and it raises some serious questions. What is a successful life? How do you achieve it? What do you do when obstacles come in your way? Well, the story tells of striving for success through three major movements or parts. And the first part we see is responding to crisis in verses 1 through 10. Then we see them seeking God's help in verses 11 through 20. And then it ends with almost a question, can you turn defeat by sacrifice? But it begins with a new king on the throne of Israel, Jehoram, the son of Ahab. Now, Jehoram is a slight improvement over Ahab and Jezebel because he puts away the pillar to Baal, but he keeps worshiping in the synchristic way that, Je that the original king of Israel, Jeroboam, had set in place. And as we've noted throughout, the Lord had made a promise to Israel, if you'll serve me, if you'll obey me, I'll bless you. Specifically, I'll bless you with the promised land. But if you turn, I will take the promised land from you. And that's what we see right here. Jer Jehoram has begun to come back, but not all the way. And so what happens? Moab rebels. Here with this change of power from Ahab to his son Jehoram, Moab says this is a great time to test, to see if we can break free. So they attempt this. And Jehoram then goes to Jehoshaphat, as we saw in a very similar story in 1 Kings 22 that Keith read earlier. And Jehoshaphat is willing to go. 
Now that seems like a very unwise thing considering all that happened in 1 Kings 22, but the emphasis here is not so much on Jehoshaphat, but Jehoram. So these two armies unite, and then Jehoram picks a route. Let's go south, pick up your vassal, Edom, for Jehoshaphat's vassal, and then let's come up the southern border of Moab, because that's not as well protected. And yet this route takes them seven days, and they run out of water. Our commanding general's greatest fear has come true. They're about to lose, not because they have worse weapons, not because they have worse battle strategy. They're about to lose because they didn't plan enough provisions. Ironically then, in verse 10, Jehoram says that Yahweh, you may notice that the Lord is in all caps, caused this to happen. Well, this is a rather ironic since there are no signs that Jehoram asked Yahweh what route they should go. We see from Jehoram what we see from many today. A year goes well, and what do we see in the newspaper? Nothing. One bad thing happens, and what is emblazoned on many newspaper fronts? Where is God? Well, where was God in the 364 days when things were going well? There were no front page articles going another year of peace, prosperity. God has been so good to us. But as soon as one thing happens, we want to blame God for it. It's all his fault. And that's what Jehoram is doing here. God gets blamed for the bad, but gets no credit for the good. Instead, we should see that God controls both. And thus we pray when disasters come and we praise when the delights come too. And here, again, we come to this tension of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And each time we've come to this, we've noted that the Bible teaches that both are true. And both truths bring comfort if they're rightly understood. Knowing God's sovereignty gives us an anchor in the storms of life. Knowing our responsibility gives us hope that we're not just victims to life's problems. Dale Davis aptly writes, Always beware of folks who cite the sovereignty of God in order to excuse or accuse, but never to worship and adore. Now, have you ever considered the joyful freedom there is in knowing you are personally responsible? It may seem like an odd thing to say, but as a society, we've moved away from personal responsibility. It's your brain. It's your parental upbringing. It's your ancestors. It's the color of your hair. It's your chemical makeup. It's all these things. And so, well, it's not really my fault. And yet we should recognize all of those things are important. All of these things definitely contribute to the way we act and react. And yet, none of those determine your actions. They influence. They might lead us a certain way, but you are not determined by forces outside of you. you if you believe all of those things cause you to act, then you are basically just a machine that has no power or control. And yet there's joyful freedom. We have responsibility. We don't have to act based on the things that have happened before us. By God's grace, we can respond in godly ways. Thus, God's sovereignty is not an excuse for man's folly. If I make a mistake, it's wiser and truer for me to own up to it than to blame God. Here, Jehoam's folly caused him to not take enough water And so now they're in trouble. 
In fact, if Jehoram just knew God's word, he would know the only reason he had to take this march, the only reason he had to go against Moab, was he was rebelling against the Lord. So that raises the question of where do you turn when success has eluded you? And we see that in the second section, verses 11 through 20, seeking God's help. Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, realizes the problem, and he says, well, look, is there a prophet of the Lord here? One we can ask. And yet, they only begin to seek the Lord when they have begun their journey and are in trouble. Now, the point is not that you can't come to God with your troubles. Psalm 9, 9 declares, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Come to the Lord with your troubles. The point I'm trying to make is you don't actually have to wait till trouble to come to the Lord. You could come to Him before your troubles, and perhaps you might avoid them in the first place. As well, how you respond to the Lord when you're in your troubles, and then afterwards reveals were you coming to the Lord because you want to honor Him, or you came to the Lord because you just want Him to get you out of your troubles, back on the way you want to lead your own life, and then that you have no thought of God again. Many a storm-tossed sailor has found religion only to find their lifestyle once the storm has passed. Thus, we honestly need to examine ourselves. Do I come to God for God and to honor Him, or am I merely using God so that He might make my own life better? Or in our terms today, is knowing God the successful life? Or is God a part of me creating my own successful life? And here we see clearly that Jehoram has no desire to know God because when Jehoshaphat asks, is there a servant of the Lord? Jehoram doesn't know the answer. It has to be one of his servants who goes, yes, there's this prophet Elisha. He can tell us. And so Elisha comes and these prophets you may have noticed aren't always the most friendliest in their greetings. Hey, Jehoram, why are you even calling me? Why don't you go ask the prophets of your parents? You know, the ones who told you, hey, Ahab, you can go to battle and win. And then when the prophet Elijah said, well, or sorry, Micaiah said, you're going to lose. Ahab just threw him in prison. So he's saying, look, Jehoram, you don't want anything with me. Go get those prophets who are going to tell you what you want to hear anyways. And yet Jehoshaphat still wants to know. And so he tells him, and what does Jehoram do? Verses 13, he attacks the Lord again. He has no interest in what the Lord wants. He won't submit to him. He just only wants them around to blame and hopefully get him out of this scrape. Well, then we have an interesting thing. Music is played and the spirit of the Lord comes upon him. You know, music powerfully can move us emotionally and spiritually. Many of us have a song that as soon as you just hear the first few notes, you're almost in tears or in joy. The music has the power to move us. The business industry knows this. You can't go into a single store without music on in the background. Musicians know the power that music has. And thus, when the famous ship, the Titanic, was sinking, one of the bands that was hired continued to play so they could bring calm and peace into a chaotic situation. 1 Samuel 16 even tells of King Saul when an evil spirit would come upon him, David would play and the music would cause the evil spirit to flee. Martin Luther, one to never mince words, says, Next to the word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. 
It controls our hearts, minds, and spirit. A person who does not regard music as a marvelous creation of God does not deserve to be called a human being. He should be permitted to hear nothing but the braying of asses and the grunting of hogs. And all God's people said, okay, not many amens there, but nonetheless, <laughs> Luther is pointing out music is powerful and God has given it to us as a wonderful gift. So does that mean if you put music on this afternoon, you're going to start prophesying in the spirit? No, it doesn't mean that. But we can recognize the power of music and we can use it for God's glory. We should use it to move us. Now, we need to be careful. We should never use music to manipulate someone. But neither should we shy away and go, well, we just need to get a cold, rational decision from them on the facts. God has given us music to stir our hearts and we should use that in our lives to honor God, bring glory to Him. And then Elisha declares this amazing prophecy. Though it is dry as a bone out here, tomorrow there will be so much water that not just you, but all the animals can drink to their fill. And not only that, you, that's actually a small thing, because you're going to defeat Moab as well. All of this then happens the next morning. The land fills with water. And this story reminded me of Paul's wonderful words in Ephesians 3, 20-21. Now to him who is able to do more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Recently I read a biography of a woman named Darlene Dibler Rose, and in World War II, she was taken as a prisoner by the Japanese military. She was a missionary living in the Pacific Islands, and as Almost anyone who was from a European or American country, they were put in prison camps. Well, there in camp, you can imagine, she had a rough life as they made them work and gave them very few resources. But her difficult life became excruciatingly painful when they moved her to a smaller prison where they were interrogating prisoners. One day, during their exercise time, she was in the, she was in the courtyard and she saw this person slowly moving over closer and closer to the vine-covered fence. And then in an instant when the guard turned, she saw a hand shoot through with bananas. The person in the courtyard, the prisoner, grabbed them and slide them under her clothes. And Darlene began to think, I want a banana. She writes in her book, I began to crave bananas. Everything in me wanted one. I could see them. I could smell them. I could taste them. I got down on my knees and said, Lord, I'm not asking you for a whole bunch like that woman has. I just want one banana. She then began to realize, look, this is impossible. And she prayed, Lord, there's no way for you to do it. Please don't think I'm not thankful for the rice porridge. It's just that, well, those bananas look so delicious. Well, the next morning, the commanding officer of her main camp that she was in before she was moved to the smaller camp came. He checked on her, talked to the guards. And then he left. And then Darlene had a horrible realization. When he had come in, she did not bow as they were supposed to do. And then she heard the dreaded footsteps of the guard coming down the jail cell walkway. And she knew she would soon get a beating. The guard opened the door, walked in, and with a sweeping gesture laid at her feet 92 bananas. She writes... God spoke within my heart. That's what I delight to do. 
the exceedingly abundant above anything you ask or think. So friends, don't give up hope. You may be seven days in the desert without water. The Lord can bring in so much that you don't know what to do with it. You may be tortured and malnourished like Darlene, but no prison can keep him from you. He is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. And though that's a wonderful promise, there's also a slight challenge in there. Because it doesn't say he will always do what we ask or think, but that he is able to. So what do we do in those moments when we keep praying and we think he should do this and yet he hasn't done it yet? What do we do? And that leads to the last section because we see what the king of Moab does. He does something disgusting and repulsive because he wants success. And we come to this last section, verses 21 through 27, turning defeat by sacrifice. And so here we switch perspectives. Now we're seeing from Moab's perspective and they're going, wow, yesterday we looked out of our cities on this dry desert and we saw some armies and now we see blood. They see this reflection and maybe like the Red River, it makes everything look not waterish, but bloodish. And they come pouring out of the cities, ready to go plunder these captured and conquered nations. And yet in their haste, they go out unprepared and they end up losing the battle. And then if you compare verse 19, Elisha's prophecy, with verse 25, everything happens. They overthrow the cities. They threw stones on the good land. They stopped at the springs of water. And they felt all the good trees. Now, this is actually a reminder. Probably what we just read is several weeks. You, know, you don't destroy several cities and knock down all of these walls in a day. So this is one series of events collapsed in one story. And here, we then come to this last city, this last holdout, Ker-Hirasheth. And when the king of Moab sees that they're going to be defeated, he chooses 700 swordsmen. He tries to attack one weak point, the Edomites, the weakest link, and yet he can't get through. And then, shockingly, the king of Moab then sacrifices his oldest son on the wall to the god Chemosh. More surprisingly, an unexplained great wrath comes against Israel. It appears this happened due to the sacrifice, but whose wrath is this? Why was this wrath not able to be overcome? Why did they then withdraw and return to their land? Well, let's go back to the beginning on this. Whose wrath? Well, if you read, there's several views. I think only two are legitimate. And the first one is basically, well, we need to understand what's being said in Hebrew. So if you look at verse 27, it says, Then he took his oldest son who was to reign in his place and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And that preposition on is a Hebrew word all. So there they translate all as on. Now, that same word is used all, and it says, And there came a great wrath, all Israel. So some people say, well, it shouldn't say against Israel, as though it's happening against them, but it came on them. And then as well, the word wrath can also kind of have the sense of indignation. And so this first view says, look, what happened is Israel's attacking, and they see the king of Moab do this horrific thing on the wall. And what happens? Upon themselves, on them, they are so disgusted. There's such indignation that's what's happened. 
that they just leave. They're so disgusted, they just go back to their land. So that's one view, and that might be right. I'm inclined to a second view. And I need to be clear here, I didn't read a single commentary that said this, and most of them said that I was wrong. So, be Bereans, examine me, I might be wrong. What I think is happening is that it is the wrath of the Moabite, and I put God in quotes. Now, most of the commentators will immediately say, well, that can't be right, because the Bible is clear, there is no other God. God alone is Lord. And I believe, and I agree, that is true. There is no Lord besides the Lord. Chemosh is not a God. Yet, and the, the Bible's clear, give me, let me give you one example. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6, We know that an idol has no real existence. The Moabite God was not real. And that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So Paul says, look, there's only one Lord. There is no other God. Jesus is not in combat. God the Father is not in combat with these pluralistic deities, some battle in cosmos. No, God is Lord over all. And I agree. Yet two chapters later in Corinthians, Paul will again discuss food sacrifice to idols, to false gods. And in 1 Corinthians 10.20 he writes, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to participate with demons. Thus, Paul says that both, there is no other God, but also these so-called gods still have power because they are given power by demonic influences. And we see this throughout the Bible. When Moses first goes into Egypt, he and Aaron, through God's power, do some miracles. And what happens? The Egyptian sorcerers do the exact same thing by their gods. Demonic influences behind them. Even during Jesus' time, the demons had power and caused great wrath upon people. So in my view, which again is a pretty minor view, you maybe should hang on to the first one, but in my view what's going on in Moab is that they make this sacrifice to this false god and the demonic force behind it releases a wrath against Israel. Now that may be just getting out of the frying pan and into the fire, because why would the demonic force be able to stop Israel when God commanded victory? Well, two things that are at play here. First, as I noted, the prophecy in verses 18 through 19 comes true in verse 25. Elisha did not say you will defeat every remnant of Moab, Everything that he prophesied, word for word, came through in verse 25 as well. I think we need to realize there's a mystery that in this fallen world, sometimes evil wins. God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but he allows it to happen. Jesus hated demonic powers, but he did not remove everyone on earth when he came, just those he came into contact with. Yes, the Bible is clear that when Jesus died on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Yet while Jesus has conquered all demonic forces, he has not come and totally removed them, and the devil is still a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. Therefore, we don't need to fear demonic forces 
but neither should we think flippantly or lightly about them. And so, that's my opinion. You can wrestle, we can battle our theological swords on which one is right. But no matter the case, we see clearly through Scripture that God will win. But before moving on, we have to come to terms with something here, maybe something that you've heard from friends. Many of us, we hear of this sacrifice of the Moabite king, and we go, that's disgusting. That someone would sacrifice their child, that's repulsive. And they go, well, that's what the Bible says the cross of Christ is. One pastor writes, penal substitution, the idea that Jesus died to take the wrath of God, is tantamount to child abuse. A vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. Though the sheer bluntness of this imagery may shock some, in truth, it is only a stark unmasking of the violent Christian thinking behind such a theology. Many of you adults may remember about a decade ago an immensely popular book called The Shack. The author of The Shack wrote, Who originated the cross? If God did, then we worship a cosmic abuser. And you can find many people who will say such things. Well, what should we think of this? We're appalled at the Moabite action, so why are we rejoicing in the cross? Aren't they the same thing? Well, we need to remember that two things can look very similar, but be radically different. In my right hand, I have a bun, lettuce, cheese, tomatoes, all the great condiments, and an Angus patty. In my left hand, I have a bun, lettuce, cheese, all the great condiments, and a black bean patty. You know, they look the same. They, everything about, I mean, they, from a distance, it's the same thing, isn't it? They look the same until you take a bite. And then you go, these are not the same. And I'll let you pick which one's better. <laughs> They're not the same. They, they look the same. They're not. And what is not the same? Well, let's look at three things. First, one thing that we have to recognize is, as opposed to that pastor who claimed this is pre-Christian theology, this is what the Bible teaches from Genesis to the end. What did God do when Adam and Eve sinned? He sacrificed an animal so that they might be covered. What did he do in Egypt? He caused an animal to be sacrificed so blood could be spread over the doorposts and that God might pass over. What did he then give Israel? A religion in which they had sacrifice, in which every year they had a day of atonement, in which the guilty animal was set free because of the death of another animal. What is said of Jesus when he comes? The Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. What did Jesus say on the night of his death? My blood is the blood of a new covenant. He was saying, I'm going to die so that Life can come. He was saying that's what the cross is about. This Hebrews 9.22 declares, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, to declare that Jesus died to bear the wrath of God and forgive us is not violent pre-Christian thinking. Rather, it's what the Bible says from Genesis to Revelation. That's what God wanted us to understand the cross was about. Second, the king of Moab wanted to unleash God's wrath on others for his own good. God took the wrath on himself so that we might go free. They're completely different. One was selfish manipulation. 
The other was selfless dying for others. Third, unlike the story here, Jesus voluntarily gave up his own life. He declares in John 10.18, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Thus, we should be both unashamedly repulsed at what we read in 2 Kings 3. What the king of Moab did was disgusting. And we should be unapologetically rejoicing that God the Father sacrificed his son so that we might have life. They may look the same, but they are radically different. And to denounce what Jesus did is not just theological wrestling, it's blaspheming the most important event in the history of the universe. And yet, we come to the end of the story and there's no dare to be a Daniels in this story. There's no, oh, you should go be... No, this shouldn't really be like anyone in this story. Everyone in this story is an anti-hero. The king of Israel seeks success, but his success is just military power and victory. And if God's going to help him, then God, come on. If it goes wrong, I'm going to blame God. But he doesn't want God in his life. The king of Moab seeks success, and he'll stoop to the worst of actions to achieve it. And all of this is raising the question, what is a successful life? This week, Thaddeus Williams reported a study that said 84% of Americans believe that enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. Further, 86% believe that to enjoy yourself, you must pursue the things you desire most. And 91% affirm this statement, to find yourself, look within yourself. He then writes, in our day, the Westminster Catechism answer has been inverted. The chief end of man is to glorify and enjoy himself forever. You know, this man-centered, self-focused view will not bring lasting joy, though. It will not bring a successful life. A truly successful life is one that is lived to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. It's to live for the smile of God, to hear from Him, well done, good and faithful servant. So what do we do when success just won't seem to come? Well, hear these words from Galatians 6, 7-10. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. Thus, when success is not coming... We need to ask three things. First, what am I trying to reap? Or in other words, what is it I think will be a successful life? And let me urge upon you, if your definition, if your goal is ever short of success is just faithfulness to God, then you'll get discouraged and want to throw in the towel when you don't achieve your goal. Let's consider a common source of frustration. 
our bodies. Do we care for our bodies because we want to look a certain way or because we want to be a good steward of the body God has given us or both? If we're primarily and only concerned about our looks, then we'll despair because for 11 months we have eaten right, we've worked out, we've done everything we should and we just thought of Christmas candy and we gained an inch. It's not there. I've done everything right, and I just think about it, and my pants don't fit. And so what do we do? Throw in the towel. Why am I even trying? Here I am. I'm doing all this. That person over there, they just lost weight. I'm doing everything right, and I'm just going to quit. Because we didn't achieve our goal of success. Now, of course, this is not easy. But true success is found when we set our aim to please God. Not some short-term, visible result and yet, probably for some of you, the challenge is you're thinking, look, I'm not crying out like Darlene Dibler Rose for a banana. Or for some, sorry, let me change that. I'm not crying out for something incredible. I'm not asking for wealth. I just would like to be able to pay my bills without pinching every penny. I'm not asking for Superman. I just would like a man. I'm not asking for an honor roll, kid. Could we just have one child? And you're saying, well, look, is what I'm wanting really that horrible? I just want to fit in my pants. Is that such a horrible thing? God, why isn't success coming? What's going on? Why won't you give it to me? And that leads us to the second question. Along with asking, what are we trying to reap? We must ask, when do we demand the harvest? You know, in the passage I read, Galatians, he says, in due time, we will reap. The corrosive acid to achieving God's success is demanding immediate results. God promises to bless us, but he doesn't say it'll be in the ways we want or in our time frame. Thus, God may not give you financial flexibility. He may not give you a spouse. He may not give you a child. But he will greatly reward faithful service to him, even in the midst of not having those things. The future reaping may come in this life, or it might come in the life to come. God's promise is sure, though, that we will reap if we do not give up. We may not reap here on earth, or in a way we see now, but we will definitely reap. The gospel reminds us that futility and vanity do not have the final word. Christ rose again. Resurrection, victory, and hope have the final word not death, defeat, and despair. And so lastly, we must ask, well, how are we seeking success? Because when we have given the wrong definition of success, and when we're not getting it, that's when we're most tempted to go, well, it's okay to compromise here, to do this, that, there. You know, like the story of Robert Johnson, will we sell our soul to be the best blues musician? Will we, like the Moabite king, sacrifice anything and anyone? I think probably most of us would never go to those extremes. But don't we do so in little ways? Isn't abortion so rampant in our country because people go, well, she's so young and she hasn't gone to college and life's going to be hard. So, yes, we don't really appreciate it. We don't want to, but this is so, we got to have a successful life. Don't many adults sacrifice their children in the desire for their career or in their romantic lives 
not sacrificing them in their life, but in the time they give them and what they do. We may not sell our soul to the devil, but do we compromise our morals here and there because success is being liked by that group of people? Are we willing to sacrifice morals and relationships? And yet here, we're being shown that the Bible provides us with a radically different answer to achieving success. Look down again at verse 14. There, Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. Your success in this life is not going to be by you grasping for it. It's not going to be because of you. Success comes because God has regard for another. He has regard for His Son, Jesus Christ, who came to live and die for you. You know, unlike pagan religion that thinks we got to sacrifice to get God to bless us, God sacrificed His own Son so that we might be blessed. God now says that if you're connected to His Son by faith, He will bless you. And that is amazing news. You don't need to be athletic to have a successful life. You don't need to be attractive or intelligent or influential to have a successful life. You don't need to be rich to have a successful life. In fact, if you're poor in spirit, that is the key to a successful life. By faith in Christ and living a life of trusting Him. That's a life that honors God and a life that is successful. It's a life that focuses not on what we do for God, but what on He, what He did for us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are tempted and pulled. We want our lives to count. We want them to be important. And may we see that importance as comes as we are connected to You. Lord, would we long to most hear from You. Well done, good and faithful servant. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.